When a safe injection site opened in their Toronto neighborhood, residents initially had to contend with just discarded needles. But over the years, the streets around the South Riverdale Community Health Centre have become home to open drug use, fights, and this summer saw an innocent bystander struck down by gunfire among drug dealers. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. Independent investigative journalist Derek Finkel joins me to discuss the impact the site has had on the neighborhood, how police have been unable to respond to the issues, and why it potentially took the killing of a local resident to force authorities to act. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Amazon Music. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about the show. So Derek, I do want to talk about some of the issues that you are seeing in your neighborhood uh, and have been seeing for the last several years. But before we get into that discussion, I want you to tell me a little bit about your Toronto neighborhood and what it was like when you first moved there. Well, it's a little bit confusing. The story focuses on on a, a community health center that's called the South Riverdale Community Health Center. But uh, the neighborhood, as it's become known, is Leslieville. Uh, the, the health center is in a, in a part of Toronto, just east of downtown, called Leslieville. There are currently around 30,000 people that, that live there. I lived on the boundary of Leslieville uh, for about uh, 12, maybe 11 or 12 years. Um, and then I moved to the house I live in now about uh, in 2009, uh, which is right across the street from the South Riverdale Community Health Center, which again is in Leslieville. And so, yeah, so I've, I've, I've been in the area for 25 years, but I, I've lived across the street from the health center in question here uh, for more than 14 years. When was the, the South, South Riverdale Health Center identified as a location for a safe injection or a supervised consumption site? And what was the feeling in the neighborhood at the time? I don't think most people in the neighborhood uh, really understood what was going on with respect to the feasibility studies and so forth that were going on now more than 10 years ago. They, you know, because of what was going on in Vancouver, uh, there was a safe injection site or that already existed there called Insight, and it had been there actually for a while. I mean, the problems in, in East Vancouver are well known and have been well, there's it's the subject of entire documentaries and so forth. But I think that based on what happened in Vancouver, they started looking at the possibility of uh, safe injection sites in tr- both Toronto and Ottawa, and so there was a feasibility study called TOSCA as the acronym for it, uh, that was done in, in, in 2012. And, um, and then, you know, it takes a long, it took a long time. And then eventually th- that led to a community consultation pro- uh, process in uh, 2016, uh, which led to three uh, safe injection sites uh, uh, opening in uh, late 2017 in Toronto, the first three. Now it's interesting about the community consultation process is that Really, the, the community that was more uh, sort of concerned at, at the time and more organized, uh, you know, sort of in response to the prospect of safe injection sites was actually the west side of the city over uh, in response to one that was being proposed at Queen and Bathurst and the, the west side of the city. What I don't think anybody in, 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 in Leslieville really understood at the time was, you know, why it was chosen to be at that health center. I mean, I think some of us just understood that, well, there's already a health center there, so maybe it makes sense for it to be there. 
Um, but I don't think um, any of us really understood the uh, data that went, the, the, you know, and I mean the lack of data, to be honest, about Leslieville in particular, um, that uh, led to uh, it being put in, in that center. And, and so I think in the beginning, to answer your question, the, the residents who are by and large a pretty educated, progressive lot uh, I think that we believed that a supervised, we didn't know a lot about supervised injection sites because there's never been one on this side of the country. And so we just sort of bought what was being sold to us, which was that, you know, this was going, the, 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 the safe injection was going to happen inside the building. There would not be, you know, use outside the building. In fact, it was promised in the implementation guide, which almost nobody read until recently, uh, that there would be, you know, for example, zero tolerance uh, drug selling policy outside the building, that they had obligations on the perimeter of their building to keep the area safe, um, you know, and, 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 and that they were supposed to work tightly in conjunction with the police to keep the area outside of uh, the building safe, none of which really ever happened. And uh, so I think, to be honest, we were a little bit naive and a little bit, a little bit unaware that these safe injection sites are more, you know, we're more experimental than, than established at that point in time. In the article that you have at, at nationalpost.com, it identifies a, a whole series of issues that have, have cropped up in the community. And were there problems right away with this site or, or did issues kind of crop up slowly over time? No, I, I wouldn't say that they like, you know, it was not an overnight problem for sure. As I say in the piece, uh, by, by, by coincidence, my my wife well, uh, was leasing a space right across the street and you know on Queen Street from the center, um, which actually by coincidence happened to be where uh, Carolina was shot uh, on July seventh. You know I walked through the space between the west side of the health center and there's a there's a Presbyterian church um, on the corner of Queen and Carla, and so there's kind of a I would call it like a parquette. Um, type space between the two buildings and there's a passageway there's a sidewalk that you can follow through the parquet and to, to get to Queen Street and I used to walk through there you know four times a day back in those days when my my wife was leasing that space and and I can say that it didn't happen right away but I would say that within you know six to twelve months of the safe injection site opening the first thing we started to see was was needles. Um, needles started to appear um, far more uh, regularly and with uh, you know in far and in far greater numbers than they had prior to the opening. And then I would say from there, you know, and and this is why in the piece I, I write about, you know, between 2018, the first the first full year of the safe injection site was opened, and 2020, um, sort of around the time the the pandemic started. I mean, I probably went in to the site, you know, 10, 12 times uh, with needles that I was finding not just on the perimeter of the building, but also in the lanes of our street, the rear lanes behind everyone's house in Toronto. There a lot of downtown areas have, uh, you know, there's the main street and then there's lanes in back where people have these little tiny garages that they can put one car in, um, in, in most cases. And so um, these rear lanes... They were also starting to, there were needles, you know, starting to show up all around the perimeter of the center. So yeah, and, and I wouldn't say it happened right away, but by about 2019, 
it, it went from needles to all of a sudden you started to see more of a presence of actual drug use around the perimeter and in the lanes and, and then also the, the early stages of, of drug dealing going on also. How have things changed in the community since the pandemic? I know that during that, that time there were, you know, parks weren't open and, and schools weren't open. So you had kids kind of everywhere in the neighborhood. So I can imagine there, there were potential causes for concern and, and safety of the children in, in this area during the early stages of the pandemic. But I think as we've all seen across the country, in inner cities, in in most major Canadian centers, there's been kind of an increase in in open air drug markets. There's been an increase in homelessness, an increase in in overdose deaths. How have things changed in your neighborhood in the last three years? Yeah, well, the 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 the, the things definitely got worse during the pandemic for a bunch of reasons. Um, you know, in in a city like Toronto, a bunch of the shelters closed down or seriously reduced their capacity. They started turning you know, community center, gymnasiums into shelters. They, they were opening up shelters all over the city that where there previously hadn't been shelters. Um, but, but the problem, you know, it got a bit worse, but it, it, it wasn't like markedly worse. But the, but the real problem was for the children. Now, I should say that on, on my street, Heward Avenue, um, when I first moved here, um, my son was the 20th or the 21st or something like that child on the street. Um, there are now almost a hundred children on, on my street and it's a one block street. So there are a ton of children, uh, in a pretty, you know, confined area and they all go to school, uh, or many of them, the ones, the ones who go, or who are grade six and under the, the, the primary school kids, they go to a school that's a half a block from the, this safe injection site. Uh, which is an, another perhaps another topic, but that th- these children, when the schools closed down and the parks closed down, and the splash pads put, closed down, these lanes kind of became their their de facto playgrounds, and they were riding their bikes and they were playing ball and they were you know doing all the stuff kids do, but the activity around the center was also getting worse and it was pushing down into the lanes. We started having overdoses in the lanes where the children were playing. And um, we had a like the needle situation got out of control and um, we had violence. We had, um, you know, stuff being thrown at children. We had adults there, you know, adults were being um, assaulted. We had, you know, some, some, some fairly serious we, uh, situations. And so it was, you know, a scene I write about in the piece where I actually was walking behind one day two, you know, roughly eight-year-old girls that I, I didn't really know. Um, and uh, they, I was following them around into this parquette. And when we got around the, you know, kind of around the corner, as it were, into the parquette, there was a couple, a man and a woman who were clearly uh, high and they were fighting and screaming at each other and they were throwing punches and they were, um, you know, trying to hurt each other. And then, you know, a few feet away from them, I looked over and there were two men with their arms hanging out and needles in their hands. And they were shooting up against the wall of the, of the health center. And these girls were petrified. And so I kind of got them and asked them where they were going and kind of got them away from that scene and on their way. And then that's when I finally decided to stop just inquiring about needles and start, I, I really wanted to speak to somebody about what was going on outside the center because it, it, it just made no sense to me that a, a community health center could allow that kind of activity to go on on a regular basis 
um, when there are a hundred children on the street at borders and they're a half a block from a from a, pr- a primary school that has almost 500 children in it and and so and not to mention the daycares across the street I mean they're on a school day now there are probably more than a thousand children within a hundred meter radius of that health center and 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 so I ended up speaking with the uh, director of the safe injection site at the time a woman named Leah Palmer and so this was kind of my first you know where I was so irritated and, and and taken aback by something that I actually decided, okay, this is, this is, this has got to be, this, I got to talk to somebody. So what I found out later was that there were actually a whole bunch of other people on my street who were, who had come to the same conclusion and were doing the same thing and speaking with the same uh, woman named Leah Palmer. And when I spoke to Leah on the phone, it was, you know, it was in the middle of the pandemic. Um, she listened to me. And the first thing that she said was, well, you know, the, the pandemic has been really hard on society's most vulnerable. And I said, well, society's most vulnerable are the children trying to play in their lanes on their bikes because they have no school and no parks. Um, you know, your, your clients are adults with addiction issues. Um, the children are society's most vulnerable. And I think that's something that you've kind of lost on the way here. It sounds like her, her initial response to your concerns may not have been the most sympathetic, but did you find that the center that, that Leah Palmer or others at the center were willing to hear out your concerns or willing to potentially do something about it? Or did, did yours and, and other residents concerns mostly fall on deaf ears? No, they, they completely fell on deaf ears. And I, the end of my, my other thing that I was tabling with Leah Palmer in that conversation, which lasted for more than an hour was, you know, how can there not be security? Like, how can you run something like that and have drug users, open use, you know, overdoses, you know, violence, all these things I'm talking about. How can you have that and have no security, like especially the prox- given the proximity to children in the schools and so forth? And her answer was, well, we don't, we're not budgeted for security. And I said, well, how can you not be? And so, you know, myself and, you know, a half dozen other people on, on my street who were having the same conversation with her at the same time, you know, we're basically told that there's no money for security. And so I asked her to look into that because this didn't seem to be a tenable situation. And none of us, none of us ever heard back from her. So, it's, so, and I also will just finish by saying, you know, this particular part of the story by just saying that my, I think the sense we all got in trying to converse with Leah Palmer and the other staff that works there, the more frontline staff, is that they seem to be trained to respond to community concerns, legitimate ones about safety and children and so on and so forth. By kind of spinning it around, it's almost a bit of a passive aggressive thing where they they spin it around and 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 just immediately talk about the hardships of um, you know those who are addicted and those who are underprivileged and so on and mental health issues. I mean, they are homelessness or you know they just they, they, they I think they're sort of trained to to pivot to um, overarching crises that don't have anything to do with the specific safety. Uh, issue at their building uh, at all. We'll be right back. And so you have this center that has inside a supervised safe injection site, supervised consumption site. I know they're kind of terms used interchangeably, but outside you have open air drug use, you have violence. And and as I understand from reading your piece, you, you start to see drug dealers move in on this street as well, which is, you know, obviously a clear 
crime taking place. What have the city or the police said about this site? Is there police involvement at this site? Do the police have a mandate to go in and deal with the drug market that that's occurring there? Well, again, interestingly, this is something I think most of the people on the street didn't fully understand until this year, until we started engaging with uh, the center this year. And even before the shooting of July 7th, we just we got so frustrated with, with, with the lack of response uh, from the center that we started collecting our own data. You know, we presented that data uh, about what, what we as uh, the residents of Hewitt Avenue were experiencing in and around the center for about a month between May, May and uh, May and June. To, to, you know, to the, to the question about policing, like, so why, why, were there so, why were there so many activities along the lines of what we're talking about going on outside the center? And the, what, what I don't think any of us understood fully until more recently is that the police, because the supervised injection site, they, they all receive federal exemptions because, you know, from con- the Controlled uh, Substance Act, because they, you know, these drugs that they're administering, and I will say that 82% of the drugs that are administered at this injection safe injection site uh, is fentanyl. Um, the next highest one down is crystal meth, which is, I think, 9%. And, you know, these safe injection sites were born from the heroin crisis in, uh, in Vancouver, you know, in BC. And uh, heroin is almost like, I think it's at like 3% or 2%. Like it's, it's almost non-existent. Anyway, the police, by law, cannot because of the federal exemption. They can't go in, obviously, and, and you know the idea is that that they've received received an exemption, so these these illicit drugs are you know not policeable inside the building. Now, what we didn't understand was that while the police were never prohibited per se from policing outside of the building, I would the, the in twenty nineteen. The, the, the Leslieville uh, safe injection site participated in a, in a research study that was overseen by UBC uh, in Vancouver, um, which was the focus of the research was, you know, what is the effect of having police around a safe injection site on the uh, those seeking harm reduction? And so it sort of came to this conclusion that um, a, a police presence um, intimidates those seeking harm reductions. There shouldn't be a police strong. So they 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 enact, they sort of created this this policy uh, which is never really an official policy but they believed that there should be a non enforcement boundary around safe injection sites and so you know what happened was and one of my neighbors uh, actually with her husband witnessed one time in the in, in right right in the dawn of of this this research which was twenty when it was published in twenty nineteen where a plain clothes officer was arresting someone who was dealing. Uh, or allegedly dealing uh, right on the perimeter of the building. And um, a couple of the harm reduction workers came r- racing outside when they saw this to try to stop the plainclothes policeman from making an arrest. Because, you know, my belief is that that the, 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 the harm reduction employees were sort of, they bought into this, this research, which was that there should be like a minimal police presence or, or like no police presence uh, around the building because that just inhibits supposedly the harm reduction clients from wanting to come in the building. So this, this, even though it was never an official police policy that they couldn't, uh, I mean, the, the, the superintendent of 55 division, which oversees the health center and where I live, her name's uh, Kim O'Toole. She told me 
that, you know, right after the shooting, that the relationship between the center and the police was not good. And that there was a lot of tension and that the police officers had been told to kind of get away from the property or that they shouldn't be around the property by the staff of the center. And so it's kind of this gray area, like, was it really being policed? And then there's also the complication of many of the activities that are going on outside the center, like open drug use, overdosing needles being left around. Those aren't even even issues you'd call the police for. Um, the police are only engaged when there's like a threat to, you know, uh, life or harm to somebody or, you know, drug dealing. But I mean, the truth is that until recently, they haven't really been, been doing, I don't think drug, that drug dealing on that level has been a massive uh, concern for them. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that comes along with, with drug dealing is the potential for violence. There's the potential for competition. There's the potential for drug rips. Um, and this all came to a head July 7th of this year. And you've kind of touched on it. There was a shooting in the area on July 7th. Tell me about what happened. What, what's important for people to understand, because I think there was this um, misguided belief on behalf of many people in Leslieville that when Carolina Hubner Makarat, mother of two young children who lived just on the border of Leslieville, was walking across the street from the health center to get a smoothie on July 7th and was caught in this cold-blooded crossfire uh, dispute between three alleged drug dealers, one of whom I had actually seen um, operating on the perimeter of the building for some time. The narrative was that, you know, we were all sort of responding to this murder or trying to take advantage be, to be opportunists, uh, which the Toronto Star uh, just uh, in an editorial recently labeled all of us for questioning safe injection sites as opportunists. Um, but the truth is, we were engaged, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we, we did this, um, you know, this street level research. We, we, filled, did, we filled out Google Sheets for almost a month. There was 136 incidents. We met with the CEO of the health center and his senior staff with the various community representatives on my street and, and in nearby areas uh, two weeks before the shooting. We had a meeting three days before the shooting on July uh, 4th when uh, we, we were expecting them to unveil a security plan. And they didn't. They didn't unveil anything. And the residents got really frustrated. And one of them said to the to the CEO, what is it going to take for you to, to act? Is, does, does a child have to die? And does one of our children have to die? Because that's what's going to happen. And three days later, Carolina, you know, an innocent mother in our neighborhood was, was shot. And that's when things completely turned around. Um, as I write in the piece, uh, so, so I, what I'm trying to say is we were engaged in this well before the, the shooting. So when people say, oh, this is just a knee-jerk reaction to a shooting, that, that's actually BS. That's actually completely factually incorrect. And, and after the shooting, it was funny. We had a meeting that was scheduled for July 10th. And these meetings... Uh, you know, they were they were sort of working out to be weekly meetings. And we had one scheduled for July 10th. Carolina was shot on July 7th. So when we had our meeting on Monday, July 10th, it was a completely different thing. No, We were no longer just dealing with the CEO and some, you know, the uh, facilities manager and the director of the safe injection site. We, we had the superintendent of police who had to invite herself, by the way, because the, the center didn't invite her. 
to be part of a, a safe a community safety meeting, which is just mind blowing. And also we had our, our member of parliament, Julie DeBruz in there. We had four board members of the of the uh, health center there suddenly. Um, we had, uh, anyway, we, we all of a sudden had a completely different group. And um, they tried, as they have basically done since then, it's, it, it's become, to be honest, for me, it's become more of a damage control campaign than it, than it is a, a sincere effort uh, to acknowledge, A, the problems that existed, and, which they really still haven't even done, and to, and, and to, uh, you know, to acknowledge their own responsibility and what has happened, and to acknowledge that you know, uh, this needs to get fixed. And, and instead, what's happened is a lot of resources have been dropped into what is effectively, like I say, a damage control campaign. They've gone door to door to try to uh, gauge the community concern and what, where the community's sort of, you know, what the what the heat level is in the community. And what's interesting is the gentleman who, uh, and this is only stuff. This is something that's just kind of becoming known now. Is that the gentleman who's behind the company, which is called Public Progress, is a guy named Bruce Davis, who's like a very well known liberal uh, lobbyist fixer, used to be the head of the TDSB. And he's organizing, uh, and I didn't write about this in the piece, but he's organizing, you know, uh, meetings with parents of young children. And, you know, from the first report of the first meeting I heard about, it's a little bit like, it's a little bit like a Jesuit conversion. Like, like, I don't think it's really about um, gauging the concerns of the community. I think what it's really more about is these sites, by law, the, the Supreme Court of, of Canada ruled uh, on the Insight case, the, the Vancouver uh, uh, safe injection site, that harm reduction cannot come at the expense of public safety. And, uh, and furthermore, uh, communities have to uh, exhibit clear support of these sites for them to exist. And that's why back in 2012, when they were doing the feasibility studies, Leslieville was picked because a more affluent uh, family-oriented uh, uh, area like the beach in Toronto or Leaside in Toronto or Rosedale or, you know, they never, they knew, the city knew they would never be able to get community support. And I think someone like Bruce Davis has been dropped in now because, you know, they were prior to the shooting, they were looking to expand these types of services, not shrink them. And so now what's happened here, in addition to the fact that uh, a week and a half ago or whatever it was, um, one of the harm reduction workers in the center was charged with uh, aiding and abetting one of the shooters and obstruction of justice. And uh, I think that's going to get very messy. So the trust level, you know, between the damage control campaign that has been pretty distasteful, to be honest, as a resident, and the, the, these allegations of one of their own harm reduction workers actually being sort of somehow involved with one of the drug dealers, compiled with the fact that, you know, my police sources were telling me even a month before that arrest that the center was being investigated for dealing inside the center, not outside the center. So, there's a lot that needs to be unraveled here. And I think that this Bruce Davis individual is being dropped in because they see that the this the the, the momentum that you know harm reduction may have had at one point in time has, you know, in, in this sort of grand experiment is starting to dwindle. You know, for its part, the province largely funds these sites. Do you do you feel that what's happened in the last month and a half has 
got the province's attention and that they may actually act to do something about the problems regarding safety at this site? Yeah, well, I also pointed out in my piece that even though Doug Ford, our premier, um, went on the radio, uh, I think a day or two after the first shooter was arrested back, you know, back in like, you know, within a week of the actual shooting. And he, you know, was playing the tough guy and said he was going to get to the bottom of this. And if they weren't, if the safe injection site wasn't compliant, it was, was going to be gone. And he said he was going to reach out to the community. And, and the truth is he and his office never did until the day my article came out. And uh, one of my fellow street representatives finally heard from his, uh, I believe it was his um, assistant um, uh, deputy uh, spokesperson. I don't know where that's going. I think that they are more open to actually hearing from us now. Um, I, From what I understand, you know, there's this sort of disconnect between, because you know, we're talking about a conservative government in in, in, your, in in Ontario, and you're right. They do, by and large, fund. They hold the purse strings, and they have the power to 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 end you know to end any safe injection site. Uh, uh, and um, I think, interestingly, our local member of par- uh, provincial parliament is Peter Tabins, uh, who's an, who's a New Democrat, and uh, he sent a letter in late July to the health minister Sylvia Jones asking her to conduct an audit of this site. So you've got a new an NDP MPP asking a conservative health minister to conduct an audit of a harm reduction program, which is in and of itself kind of remarkable. And you know, from what I've heard from my you know people who have political connections in, inside this government is that I think that our premier and our health minister would both like to act and to do something. I think that, you know, I don't think it's a huge stretch uh, given everything that's happened to see and, and their political stripes to see them doing that. However, what I believe they're up against is bureaucracy and their own, you know, there's there's your elected officials and then your, there's your bureaucrat, your massive bureaucratic, you know, force. And from what, I, what I'm hearing, I believe what I'm hearing, which is that, you know, the, the, the health minister is coming up against a deputy health minister who's not elected named Catherine Zahn, whose background is mental health. And, you know, we had a town hall in Leslieville that had about three or 400 people on July 26th. And, and Dr. Zahn was one of the panelists. And she, she is a full-on supporter of harm reduction. She believes there should be more, more harm reduction, not less harm reduction. And she made very, very little, you know, comments about the safety of the community um, that, that comes with that. I mean, she, she just gave it lip service as far as I'm concerned, but so, so I think the dynamic we have here is, is I, I think that the premier, I think that, and, and his health minister are probably relatively on the same page, but they're up against a ministry that is kind of really bought into this. Um, and you know, whether they've bought into safe injection sites is one thing, but Buying into safe injection sites when they are clearly coming at the expense of public safety is another thing. And at a certain point, the elected officials have to kind of put their foot down and take a stand. And I, and, and I have no idea whether or not that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think overall you're, you're speaking from a, a place of understandable frustration. I can imagine you and your neighbors have been, have been going through a lot these last few years. Um, Derek, I appreciate your time. Fascinating story, and it's definitely an important issue in this country. Thanks very much, Dave. Take care. 10-3 is produced by Tyler Dawson. 
Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Derek Finkel. You can read the whole story at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening.